Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. If you remember from last year, we did an episode where we discussed a few summer reading picks. We, uh, you know, during the summer, people go on vacations, they sit on beaches, or they're, man, they're not in school, they're not teaching. For various reasons, sometimes we feel more inclined to pick up a book and uh, enjoy it. Or, or, you know, maybe you read something that's a little out of your, your normal reading uh, uh, diet, something maybe a a little more fun or a little more technical in some cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just depends. Or just outside of the genres that you like to, to prance around in. Uh, so last year we did the episode where we each uh, shared a, a little fiction, a little science, and we let you uh, decide if you wanted to read any of them. Well, everyone seemed to really enjoy those that episode, so we thought, well, this year let's do it again, except we'll, we'll do it double-sized. We'll do one episode where... Um, Julie and I share a few more picks for you to consider for this summer's reading. And then we'll do another episode where we just get some guests to share their summer reading picks. So um, this is the first of those two episodes where Julie and I are going to go through some things that we have read, are reading on, and plan to read. Uh, and we'll see if they line up with uh, what you would like to consume with your brain this summer. That's right. So get your scrunchies ready. Put your hair up. Slather on the sunscreen. Get your towels ready, because we're going to give you some good stuff to consider reading in your layabout hours here. Yeah. And I'm just going to launch into, like, quintessential beach reading right now. Okay. Now, when you say quintessential beach reading, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is worth worth mentioning that for some people, I think beach reads, people think, get the, the lowest level book you can get, you know, like a straight up airport mm-hmm. grocery store selection. But but we, we're approaching all of this with the understanding that a stuff to blow your mind listener um, is going to want something that engages the mind uh, on some level. Exactly. Yes. Which is why I, I thought I would start with the book by David Deutsch, The Beginning of Infinity, colon, Explanations That Transform <laughs> the World. Yes. I mean, seriously, if you are at the beach and you are staring out at the horizon and the waves are crashing, then you're probably considering more than ever at this very moment how the universe works, yeah. what it all means, right? And yeah, that's, that's always my experience with the beach. I mean, it, it, it summons deep thoughts. Right. So why not uh, go on exploration with David Deutsch? Um, he is a pioneer in the field of quantum computation, uh, the multiverse theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is very much um, someone who is a proponent of that and... He has a variety of TED Talks, so you can check him out in other ways. But um, I thought this book would be great to really explore, and I've just now delved into it. And it has actually seized my imagination from the first page, because a lot of the sort of territory that he covers is stuff that we have touched upon or maybe even explored ourselves. So um, someone who is a great science communicator, Deutsch is, and he can sort of bring the, the whole story of the universe to us in a way that... It's difficult, right, to try to wrap all this up in one nice package. Um, But I just wanted to say a a little uh, description from the publisher. And it says that he argues that explanations have a fundamental place in the universe. They have unlimited scope and power to cause change. And the quest to improve them is the basic regulating principle, not only of science, but of all successful human endeavor. This stream of ever-improving explanations has infinite reach. This is uh, the idea of infinity that he's exploring. Um, We are subject only to the laws of physics, and they impose no upper boundary to what we can eventually understand, control, and achieve. So he goes through all the different periods of, of um, historical thoughts, 
by humans in, you know, empiricism or enlightenment. And then he gets to the, the science revolution mm-hmm. and says that we have ideas continue to exist and knowledge is the limit less. And so, you know, it kind of reminded me of this idea that we talked about humans being meme machines, idea machines, mm-hmm. and that our ideas just exist into the future and just transmutate as they go along. So anyway, a very cool book trying to scratch at this idea of infinity and knowledge and and how we move through the world with the information that we have available to us at this very moment. Wow. Yeah, I think I'm going to have, definitely have to pick this one up as well. Uh, in part because I, I dare say we shall record an episode in the near future on the topic of infinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I, I just returned from uh, visiting the, the the World Science Festival in New York City, uh, where there was a there was one uh, lecture discussion on the nature of infinity. Is there such thing as infinity? Uh, it's a, it's a really fascinating uh, topic because uh, in in some uh, disciplines, if you run into an infinity, you mm-hmm. run into a problem because an infinity is is an error in the uh, the computational process. Uh, so it's a, a fascinating topic, and this book does indeed sound like a great way to spend your time uh, contemplating reality on the beach. Yes, so there you go. That's that's my first pick. You want to throw one in there too? Yeah, I'm gonna th- I'm gonna throw start with the one that I'm I'm really most excited about because I just finished reading it. I'm still at that stage where I'm I'm trying to decide if I if I really really liked it or if I actually loved it. I, I a book like this, I'll, I I tend to give it four out of five stars right off the bat, and then as I think about it, I'll decide. Well, maybe should I bump it up to five stars? Did it really have that kind of an impact on me, or should I maybe uh, you know leave it at four or even Move it down to three, you know, as you begin to, to fully digest the ideas. So this book is a Surface Detail by uh, Scottish author Ian M. Banks. If you remember from last year, I actually recommended another Ian M. Banks sci-fi story called The Player of Games, uh, which, like this book, is set in the culture universe. Uh, the culture universe uh, that Ian M. Banks has created in, in these ten different books is um, a, f- a far future, almost kind of space opera world. There are all these different uh, g- galactic uh, societies at varying levels of technological advancement uh, with varying ideologies. And uh, and the, the, the central civilization is called the culture. And it is a very much a, a post-singularity world uh, where the culture society has all of these humans and panhumans in it. Uh, but they kind of do what they want to. They, for the most part, they kind of live, uh, you know, this uh, this free for all existence within the culture, while uh, very advanced artificial intelligences make all the decisions. And uh, the the main artificial intelligences here are these minds that control these enormous uh, spaceships. And uh, the culture is kind of a benevolent uh, entity that uh, that will to varying degrees involve itself in other galactic uh, communities, uh, generally with the best intentions, but not always with the best of results. And uh, even though this is a ten, there are ten books in this series, this is not a part one, part two, part three mm-hmm. book. You can essentially jump in at any point. Not every book is a great first book for someone to read in this series. Uh, for instance... Uh, uh, the Player of Games, I think, is an excellent first culture book to read. And I and I have a, a strong feeling that surface detail also would work really well uh, for someone who, ha- who has no idea or just a faint idea about what the culture consists of. So 
the big thing about this book that I found interesting, I mean, certainly it has a number of, of awesome sci-fi ideas running around it. There's digitized consciousness. There's a space warfare. There are self-replicating machines. Uh, because even though it's post-singularity, it's, it's for the most part a very positive view of a post-singularity uh, civilization. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, the dark side of post-singularity as well, as a, a, uh, there's a, a segment um, of the culture that has to deal with, with taking care of self-replicating machines, uh, which they call smatter uh, in the book. <laughs> And keeping them from becoming too much of a problem. So, is ennui a problem? Is there is boredom a problem? Um, it can, yeah, it can be mm-hmm. for, for sure. Uh, within the, the the actual pan humans within the culture, they'll the the way they tend to deal with this is they be, they get involved in the benevolent aspects of the culture, trying to help other civilizations, uh, etc. So they become sort of like. They, they tap into their inner oppress. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I wanted to see if you would wince if I said that, and you did not. No, 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 no. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Uh, but uh, one of the things that really drug, uh, dragged me into this book is, first of all, uh, I'd read a few culture books in the past, but then the, the sad news recently is that Ian and Banks is is dying of cancer oh. and was not not long for this world, um, which is which is awful. We're going to lose a, a tremendous author and a tremendous mind here, uh, who is thankfully produced a number of books, both sci-fi and uh, literary fiction. Uh, but I'd, I'd heard that his more recent books had dealt more with darker uh, issues and mm-hmm. issues of mortality. And uh, and this book, uh, even though like a very advanced you know, sci-fi book, deals for the most part with hell, with theologies of hell and the problem of hell. Because imagine a world in which uh, we can digitize human consciousness, we can create a digital virtual version of you by just you know scanning the brain. And put that into this virtual world. So, the culture and various other civilizations in this universe, they, they generally reach the point where they either develop the technology, borrow the technology, or steal the technology to digitize consciousnesses and create a kind of afterlife for the, uh, a virtual afterlife for people who have died, for individuals who have died. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, these uh, various civilizations tend to take a very um, positive spin on things. It's just like a, you know, a hedonistic heaven for those who've died or some sort of peaceful place that you kind of store an intelligence and a mind that you might want to, you know, a loved one you might want to talk to later mm-hmm. or a, a great thinker that you might want to consult with later. But inevitably, some of these civilizations hold on to their arguably primitive ideas of hell. So you have societies that um, end up sending digitized consciousnesses to a place of eternal suffering. And uh, that's a problem for the culture. The culture doesn't think that's cool to have a, you know, even a virtual world where an intelligent being is tortured and, had, and, and suffers just horribly for some you know, unimaginable length of time. So uh, th- this, uh, there ends up being this war uh, that they call the, the war in heaven, but it's actually a virtual war game. That, that ends up taking place between pro-hell civilizations and anti-hell civilizations. And the idea is that they'll, they'll have this virtual war, and then whoever wins, wins. If the pro-hell side wins, then, well, then these, these few societies that, that cling to the idea of hell, they get to keep it. They get mm-hmm. to keep their virtual hells. But if the, if the anti-hell side wins, well, then they all have to be eradicated. But in this book, there are a number of, uh, of storylines that are that are coming together, and there's this uh, increasing possibility that this this virtual uh, war game is going mm-hmm. to emerge into the real world as an actual uh, conflict, an actual armed conflict. That's really fascinating because I've been thinking about war a lot, and of course, mm-hmm. th- only because my daughter continues to ask various questions. She's four years old, and she's very curious about war, and. 
So that's been on my mind lately, and and then I wonder if you could get to a point where you could play out a virtual war in society. Yeah. And, and I mean, for us, and would it have the same sort of dire consequences in one way or another that that actual war does? I mean, I'm not talking about fatality so much, but more um, in terms of regime control or the ways that we can strip our citizens of rights. Yeah, and this this book does explore that territory where, you know, it's a situation where there's a big, huge conflict between uh, uh, these two factions. And for the most part, they realize that it, this is uh, something that we can settle in a virtual environment uh, outside of actually bringing in real deaths and real destruction. But then to, to what extent can that work? Does it reach a point where it boils over into the real world again? So... Uh, so I found it to be a really fascinating book, um, and I recommend it to anyone out there who is uh, who's interested in sci-fi, who's interested in uh, in a little theology, a little philosophy, uh, and and also I should always add that Ian M. Banks had, in, injects a certain sense of humor into it as well. So it's not just you know cold hard sci-fi and cold hard philosophy. There's there's some giggles thrown in there as well. So very good. Yeah. Well, um, I had brought up my four-year-old asking questions, and so uh, I wanted to to let you guys know of a book called Big Questions from Little People and Simple Answers from Great Minds. And this is geared more toward the four to maybe 12-year-old set. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, I, I really do want to do a kid-centric book recommendation. Uh, last year, I think it was The Magic of Reality by Dawkins. Right. And that is excellent, that book, by the way, um, although I would say that's for older children. But this book is, uh, I mean, it, it, all the, the questions are generated by children, and the answers are uh, given by various experts. We're talking about Mary Roach, Richard Dawkins, Philip Pullman, uh, David Eagleman, Noam Chomsky, Mario Batali. Uh-huh. Uh, so just a variety of different people. And uh, the questions vary. I mean, it can be, uh, you know, sort of the rote stuff like, who named all the cities anyway? To do aliens exist? What makes me me? Uh, is it okay to eat a worm? Uh, <laughs> can a bee sting another bee? Why are some people mean? Why is the, uh, or why is space so sparkly? Um <laughs> And it really, it, it's one of those kind of books and the, and the explanations that are given are so pithy and great and, and oftentimes have a lot of humor that even if you think you know the answer to this question as an adult, it will be reframed for you in another way. Yeah. And you'll definitely learn something from it. And my four-year-old loves it. We just flip through it every once in a while and just say, that one. <laughs> and when we discuss it. But anyway, it's a it's a great kind of book for, for kids who are coming online in terms of expanding their consciousness about various topics in life. Like, hey, why are people mean? Why is the, the uh, nighttime sky so sparkly? And it kind of gets at the meat of, of those questions, which is pretty great. Cool. Well, my next uh, recommendation is uh, is a science book, and this one is uh, is definitely aimed at uh, you know more uh, more grown audience. Though y- younger minds will, I think, also find plenty of uh, of wonderful things in it as well. And the book is called "Elephants on Acid and Other Bizarre Experiments" by Alex Bose. Uh, Alex is uh, his his line of study is uh, the history of, of science, and uh, this book is uh, it's it's a great one. It's a great book to just pick up. And so sort of flip through and find something interesting and start reading it because, uh, it, 
there are uh, several chapters, and each chapter has all of these subdivisions. Each su- each subdivision, an interesting look at an actual scientific experiment or series of experiments that have taken place. Generally, experiments with kind of a either a surface level weirdness, you know, one of those where you're you're like, well, why did they, uh, you know, why are they giving lattes to cockroaches? That doesn't make any sense. And then you <laughs> then you read it, and you're like, oh, well, of course. Uh, if they had not given lattes to cockroaches, we would not have this vital information. And then some of the other ones uh, are kind of in reverse. Like, oh, well, that seems reasonable, but wow, they didn't really carry that out right. This book gets its title from a 1962 experiment that saw Oklahoma School of Medicine researchers dose an elephant named Tusco with LSD. Uh, LSD, of course, is the hallucinogen, the, the, the artificial hallucinogen that we've talked about in some mm-hmm. previous episodes. Um, not only did they give uh, Tusco the elephant LSD, they gave Tusco the largest dose of LSD ever administered to a single organism. Oh, my. 297 milligrams. That's 3,000 times the level of a human dose. Now, it's worth noting that at this time, everyone was getting in on LSD research, okay? It was, this was the heyday of LSD research, and, uh, and we were fascinated by its effects on the human mind and the way we, we observe the world. Uh, also, as, uh, as uh, the author points out, uh, this was also a time when the CIA was very interested in military applications of LSD, so they funneled tons of money through front organizations to various American LSD research projects. So uh, it, no, we're not sure. We can't say one way or another uh, if uh, this particular experiment uh, benefited from CIA funds, but a number of them did. A lot of people got their hands into that candy jar. So uh, this uh, this is kind of a... Tragic uh, experiment, though, uh, because uh, what happens is that they uh, they had a syringe of this uh, LSD, again, uh, 297 uh, milligrams of 3,000 times the level of human dosage, injected it in, into Tesco, and Tesco staggers a bit, uh, trumpets uh, his, uh, his trunk, falls over, and seems to have a seizure. So they administer 2,800 uh, milligrams of antipsychotics. The seizures subside a little, but not much, so they, and then they administer a bunch of uh, barbiturates, uh, and Tesco dies a few minutes later. So it's, it's sad. Not the first time an elephant has died needlessly in a scientific experiment, um, but... Uh, but sad nonetheless. Uh, they performed a necropsy, uh, revealed that uh, he had died from asphyxiation, his throat muscles had closed up. Mm-hmm. And there's a film of this somewhere in the UCLA um, archives, but it's mm-hmm. never been made public for obvious reasons. This was a, a huge embarrassment. This was, uh, this, it showed up in all the papers. There was some misinformation floating about as well. There was some information about how the researchers may have had LSD themselves. Um, Earlier in the week, and that led to some people saying, "Well, were they on LSD when they gave the elephant LSD?" There was, uh, it was, it was, a, it was not a, a pleasant story for anyone involved. I can't imagine like if that happened today. Can you imagine yeah. the fun politicians would have with that? I yeah. mean, I'm actually surprised that didn't become LSD gate back then. Yeah. Well, in 1969, another uh, UCLA res- re- researcher came along, and he decided to follow up, dosing two elephants with LSD. But here's here's the catch under much more control, mm-hmm. and the guy doing it was Ronald Siegel. And Ronald Siegel was one of the world's leading experts on the effects of hallucinogens on animals. So he he brought a lot more experience, mm-hmm. a lot more control, and he had a, a, a bad example to look back on. Uh, he was not involved in the first experiment, but he benefited from their missteps. So uh, he did a few things differently. Uh, he put LSD in the animal's water instead of a syringe, and then didn't... Then, 
didn't let the elephants have any water for 12 hours. So they came in thirsty, but they're not getting that uh, skyrocket effect all at once. All at once. It's yeah. more of a gradual. Um, and they use two dosages, one for each elephant, one with a lower dose, one with a higher. And the higher one was actually proportionally equivalent to what Tusco had, not in terms of the actual amount of the drug, mm-hmm. but... Um, proportionally to its body. And this was, you know, it was important for a number of reasons. First of all, you wanted to correct the problems of that first study, you mm-hmm. know. Let's let's and figure out what happened. Like why did the elephant die? Did the elephant die because it had all of this LSD in its system or was it the, the cocktail of other things that they administered after the fact? You know, what was going on here? So so they, they conducted the experiment. The the elephants you know, acted a little weird, but there were no seizures. There was just a, one of them took an extended hay bath. <laughs> uh, it was a much more pleasant story. So, uh, so it, it gave us a little more insight into what, what happens when in pachyderms take hallucinogenic drugs mm-hmm. and, uh, and also helped us better understand what happened with this first disastrous attempt. So that's just one of the studies that, uh, is, is looked at in, uh, in this book. And you can flip through it. There's all sorts of stuff. You want stuff having to do with automobiles, you know, digestion, um, Cats. Oh, that there were a way to measure whether or not the elephants were more open as elephants, as pachyderms after the experience, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, what are elephant doors of perception anyway? Yeah, they, they're, they're very large, I'm sure. <laughs> nice. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, more books. Uh, we're talking graphic novels, a novel from an Icelandic author, and all sorts of stuff. So uh, we'll be right back. Hey, we're back. Uh, we're continuing with uh, Julie and I's summer reading recommendations to you, the listener. A mix of fiction, a mix of science, a little science fiction, and uh, even a little comic. So, uh, Julie, take it. All right. So, here is my little guilty pleasure here this, this summer. It is The Hitman's Guide to House Cleaning. It is by Halgarum Halgerson, and this is his first book in English. He is an Icelandic author, crime fiction, very, very dark humor. I cannot wait to read this. My, my husband actually got this for me. Let me just kind of give you a quick synopsis of this book. It is about this Croatian hitman. He, he worked for the Croatian mafia. Um, his name is Toxic. His real name is Tomislav Boskis Toxic. And uh, he has 66 flawless hits under his belt. Of course, number 67, he kills the wrong guy, and he is Ooh. forced to flee the United States. And he takes on a new identity in in the form of Father Friendly, who is an American evangelist, um, who he actually ends up killing and assuming his identity. Um, so here he is on his way to Iceland. He has no means of escape from this island, He, which is devoid of gun shops, by the way. So Ooh. he's completely out of his element. Um, and there's no business for him there, obviously. There's not a lot of contract killing in Iceland. And he's sort of uh, forced to come to terms with his own bloody past. And so it's got all the little, you know, fun traps there, uh, mistaken identity, uh, you know, the forces of good and evil and who we really are, you know, who is this person inside of us. Um, so I really can't wait to read this. Um, it's gotten some, some good reviews and, um, I haven't delved into crime fiction in a while. So like I said, this is going to be my guilty pleasure, but, uh, I just wanted to mention that Halgerson is, he's kind of a, a larger than life figure himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a poet. Um, 
He's kind of a provocateur. Um, he is someone who really has come down actually very hard on Iceland in terms of its politics and its economics. And uh, he's been called the Bukowski of Iceland. I'm not yeah. sure how I feel about that. But uh, I think that just sort of points to the idea that he ruffles a lot of people's feathers, albeit in a very darkly uh, rendered way with his humor. So hmm. for anybody out there who is looking for a new crime fiction novel, there you go. And I often find that, that European crime fiction is the way to go, uh, because you know, especially if you've read enough or seen enough uh, American and U.S.-based crime fiction, you, you kind of you kind of grow dead to it after a while. But even a, a fairly cliche crime story set in uh, in, in a European country, mm-hmm. and instantly uh, it's, it's all these different elements uh, influence. Uh, the experience. Yeah, and he has spent a good chunk of his life in New York and, and various other cities around the world. Mm-hmm. So he has a baseline understanding of different cultures and uh, the strangeness that comes with, you know, flipping between one and another, which kind of, I think, helps to sort of underscore this idea about what identity is. Well, that one sounds very good. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, for my next one, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with another sciencey topic, and this is actually a book you gave to me. It's so, true. And it and this is another one that is uh, nice in that it is not a you know it's a it's a reasonably thick like you know about 400 pages, but it's composed of, of various uh, essays and uh, and 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 articles by a host of scientists, science writers, um, other professional commentators on the, on the subjects uh, contained. It's called This Will Make You Smarter, uh, New Scientific Concepts to Improve Your Thinking, edited by John Brockman. The book is great because, again, you can just flip through it. You can find a number of really interesting topics, including uh, the article that we referenced in our pro wrestling episode. Uh, <laughs> that's where I found it. I was just flipping through the back, uh, looking through the index, and I saw the word wrestling. And I'm like, really? There's a, one of these articles deals with wrestling? And sure enough, uh, mathematician and economist Eric Weinstein had that article about kayfabe, about the, the altered reality of layered falsehoods and mm-hmm. how... This uh, its existence in the world of professional wrestling actually relates very strongly to the way systems work in the real world. Um, but in addition to that, you'll find articles inside by Richard Dawkins, who we mentioned earlier, uh, physicist Max uh, Tegmark, who I, I just uh, saw in New York at the World Science Festival, uh, always a, a great scientific communicator, uh, Jonah Lair, Aubrey de Grey, David Eagleman, Allison Gopnik, V.S. Ramachandran, all these names I'm sure yeah, you'll recognize yeah. from uh, from previous episodes of our show and your external scientific reading. Uh, so highly recommend this. You can, like, really, you can... Like I flip through it, and then here is an article by Matthew Ritchie, Systematic Equilibrium. Bam. And it's like three pages. So it, <laughs> it's a great book for, I don't know, if you're one of the people who read stuff on, a, on in the bathroom and you want a, an enlightened experience there, I think this would be a great one. Likewise, on the beach, fitting in quick bursts of information for your brain uh, in between your various uh, travels. Go for it. And honestly, who hasn't reached enlightenment in the bathroom? Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know? Let's be honest about it. Um, so when I was talking about Hitman's Guide to House Cleaning, I was talking about this idea of uh, what it means to be a stranger in a strange land. And perhaps one of the best books to capture what that feels like is a graphic novel by Sean Tan. It's called The Arrival, and it is just hauntingly beautiful. It is about a man who leaves his family, and he gets on a boat, and he goes to another land, um, there are absolutely no words in it, and the reason is that um, as he 
leaves his land, his homeland, he leaves his language, he leaves his mother tongue. Oh. And so the idea is that you get the sense of pure isolation uh, that he is experiencing and also otherworldliness, strangeness, alien, uh, an alien culture with an alien language. And so the way that Tan represents this is that he has all sorts of incredibly mystical creatures that are running around in this new land that this man is experiencing. So um, the drawings themselves are technically absolutely beautiful. Um, they're in shades of, of black and white and gray and brown. Um, and you'll see street scenes, and they look at first glance completely normal, and then you see that, that birds have horns on them mm-hmm. or that there's a giant snail just walking around. Um, I wanted to re- uh, read a really quick excerpt from Brenton Nickel. He reviewed the book on Goodreads. I just thought he had a, a good take on this. He says, Tan's world here is struck through with fantastical twist, as though we view a quantum reality several iterations from our own. It is vaguely steampunkish with perhaps a hint of anime. This is where you find the genius of Sean Tan. He has imagined an alternate reality that is fully alien yet instantly familiar. Many an artist, when attempting to depict the alien, will lazily skip straight to the zany, the nonsensical, the surreal, so that the audience is struck on the head by the message that this is not your earth. Tan is better than that. He draws pet animals, food, architecture, and vehicles that are certainly odd and whimsical, but the reader is able to intuit how it might fit all together and work. The strange horrors that the book's protagonist and his newfound friends fled from in their homelands rest firmly in the realm of fantasy, but they can easily be interpreted as nods to various evils and hardships in our own real world. And some of the animals that are in here, it's just like such a feat of imagination. Um, you know, you see things that look like they could be a reptilian, or you often see this sort of tadpole-looking dog. Yes, the, the tadpole-looking dog is the one that, that caught my eye. Uh, at first, it's just because because very cute, very alien though, and and then, yeah. again the art is wonderful here. It looks like um, like like sort of classic sepia toned uh, images of of, of you know, newcomers to New York in the golden age, yeah. but fused with this uh, with with this alien world, this world of alien creatures and. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because, you know, he, he began this as a children's book and then he realized that he had much more to say about it as, as the child of, of a father who had immigrated. Mm-hmm. And he spent four years researching it and really going through the Ellis Island oh, wow. uh, records. In fact, you see a lot of uh, sketches of um, people in yeah, the front and the back. Because the art really echoes those images, those, those iconic immigrant images that we see just so well. It just... Yeah, and then he shows these the picture of the new city that uh, the, the character is in, and it's just so futuristic. It's like Blade Runner meets like uh, you know 19th century America. It's amazing. Well, that's one of the wonderful things about fantasy uh, is that is that like a, like fantasy in and out, like pure fantasy, it's great. But when you inject like a little bit of fantasy and a little bit of uh, of, of real world, a little bit of science, a little bit of history, what have you, uh, you can illuminate things in the history or in the science that either you had grown numb to or you never realized were there to begin with. Well, and see, that's what I think is so intriguing about this. We often talk about this. Like, there's there are certain tropes that just are, you know, like the alien experience, right, mm-hmm. or being a stranger in a strange land. And it's very easy to sort of fall into cliche. And when we've talked about artists being successful at depicting this, it's usually because they're coming in at an angle that you would not expect. And it makes that trope feel new and fresh and, and understood again for the first time. And one of the the ways that I think that Tan does this is just by like even uh, this two-page spread of clouds and cloud formations that mm-hmm. he has in the book. 
And it's meant to show you what the character sees when he's on the steamship to this new world, looking up at the sky each day. Each each cloud formation is different and beautiful and just otherworldly. And so, I mean, just this page, I could sit here and stare at probably for an hour and yeah. analyze it. Um, so anyway, that if you guys like graphic novels, if you um, if you want to sort of delve in deeper to the psychological aspects of what it is to feel isolated or to be, uh, or, you know, inserted into this what feels like alien existence, then check out The Arrival. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah, and this is one, too, just lo- looking at you can tell it's not a comic that you read and then you put on the shelf. You know, it's, it's one you can keep out on the coffee yeah, table yeah. because people are going to be drawn to it. Well, and I tend to pick it up and just flip through it again and again just because um, aesthetically I can't help it. But, mm-hmm. you know, thematically it's just I find something new, new every time I look at it. Okay, well, for my next pick, I just want, I, I have to mention this one because, uh, it, this is the most beautiful book that I have read, uh, this year. Um, and it's called Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. Uh, it's the story of, uh, Robert Grenier, a day laborer in the American West at the start of the 20th century, an ordinary man in extraordinary times. Uh, he experiences some uh, severe loss, uh, loses his family, and then struggles to make sense of this, uh, as the modern world creeps into this, uh, this, this American West that he's grown to know and love. Dennis Johnson's writing in this is just beautiful. I'm going to read a little bit from it in, in just a moment, but it's uh, first of all, it's a novella. So if you're wondering, what's I need something short for my trip or for my my beach read or for my travels. What is the the shortest but but most beautiful thing I could possibly read? Then I would I would suggest giving this one a try. Um, there's nothing. There's there's no science in it really. There's a there's some some fun little bits of history uh, interspersed in there. Uh, there's there's nothing really in the way of fantasy. There's some dream context uh, involved, but but that's about it. Uh, but still, it's the, the most beautiful thing that I've read. And I'm just going to read a, a quick bit here. This is a uh, before he experiences this loss, he has a conversation with his wife about their uh, about their infant. He says, um, how much does she know, do you suppose, Gladys? As much as a dog pup, do you suppose? A dog pup can live by its own after the bitch weans it away, Gladys said. He waited for her to explain what this meant. She often thought ahead of him. A man-child couldn't do that way, she said. Just go off and live after it was weaned. The dog knows uh, more than a babe until the babe knows its words. But not just a few words. A dog raised around the house knows some words, too. As many as a baby. How many words, Gladys? You know, she said, the word for its tricks and the things you tell it to do. Just say some of the words, Glad. It was dark, and he wanted to keep hearing her voice. Well, fetch and come and sit and lay and roll over. Whatever it knows to do, it knows the words. In the dark, he felt his daughter's eyes turned on him like a cornered brute's. It was only his thoughts tricking him, but it poured something cold down his spine. He shuddered and pulled the quilt up to his neck. All of his life, Robert Grenier was able to recall that very moment on this very night. So it's uh, you know it's it's uh, it's a beautiful novella. I, mm-hmm. I highly recommend checking it out. It's uh, it's available in, in various formats and also as an audio book. Um, give it a shot. All right, sounds very very good. Um, so those are just some recommendations from us. Uh, we would love to hear from you guys too. Do you, is there something that you you feel very strongly that we should check out that others should check out? Um, if you have one or two recommendations, um, please fly and buy us. Yeah, and uh, also remember we are going to do a second episode here that should publish after this one where we'll have some guests, some outside guests from uh, from, from various uh, 
parts of the uh, the world. Uh, well, two parts of the world, really. And then also some uh, some guests from various parts of our office. So we'll have uh, some guests from some of the other How Stuff Works podcasts on to share their recommendations. And through all of this, there are going to be places where you're like, oh, that book sounded really interesting. What was the name of that? How do you spell that? Well, luckily, we have a blog. And on that blog, you will find an accompanying blog post where we will list all the books that we've mentioned in this podcast episode and the other one. And you can find that at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where we keep all of our, our content, or at least links to our content. Uh, but you can also find us on social media, where you will find us at Facebook, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You'll find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. We're on Tumblr as well, and also YouTube, where our handle is Mind Stuff Show. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. 